This is CTU Morning Report from St. Paul's Hospital. We're going to present an interesting case. Uh, again, I'm Thomas Rostin. I'm the chief resident at St. Paul's. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Barry Kasten, who is helping lead the VODCAST in, uh, initiative. And he's the director of the clinical teaching unit um, and the acting head of uh, the UBC division of GIM. And we also have Dr. Stéphane Boyer, who is the program director for General Internal Medicine Fellowship, and Dr. Dan Ennis, who is uh, our previous chief medical resident here and now a rheumatology fellow at UBC. So this is a case that we're going to present that uh, I saw in Dr. Kasson's clinic a number of weeks ago, and uh, it's the case of uh, many cooks in the kitchen. So I'll tell you the story and feel free to interject if you have questions. So this is a 71-year-old active male who presents around 2012, so about four years ago, who describes having recurrent chest pressure while playing squash. And he felt that this was most likely related to esophageal reflux. Um, but he went to go see a cardiologist who ordered an urgent angiogram based on the very reproducible exertional nature of the chest pain and uh, was diagnosed with three-vessel coronary artery disease. He was uh, then um, uh, planned for an urgent coronary artery bypass grafting uh, at uh, a tertiary care center here in Vancouver. So he undergoes a successful open-heart surgery at VGH um, just a few weeks later, and he is sent to recover in the anesthesia recovery unit. But then his blood pressure suddenly drops and he's found to have a hemoglobin of 60. And a chest x-ray shows that he has a full right-sided whiteout. So he's urgently brought back to the OR for a repeat sternotomy, and it's found that he has a lacerated right upper load of the lung. It's believed that when they were using the wires to close his chest, they accidentally caught an edge of the lung, and so he required a wedge resection. Um, he had a difficult course in the um, recovery unit thereafter, very difficult wean from the ventilator after the, the wedge resection, and he eventually does recover and return home within about a week and a half or two weeks. The issue is that he is still very slow to recover at home, and I'll tell you that this is a, uh, a 71-year-old guy who is basically seemingly in the prime of life almost. You know, he's exercising every day, playing squash. He's very active and, uh, and, and basically almost still working. you like Barry. <laughs> very active and very, almost still yeah. working. Except you're 20 years older. <laughs> very Kasson-esque. Um, and he says that his main complaint is that he's very short of breath and fatigue. He eventually tries to return to squash about a year later, but can never reach his pre-morbid fitness level, and he decides that he can't continue playing squash. Uh, I think it was quite demoralizing for him having been so competitive and, and now basically being, um, being unable to compete. Uh, his actual health, so it... What happens is he gradually starts to get better, never reaches full fitness, and then he starts to get worse again at about a one-year mark. And by worse, you mean the shortness of breath is worsening? Shortness of breath and fatigue. So in 2014, so almost two years later now, he is complaining of a number of symptoms. The first is early satiety, but he has generally good appetite. Um, he also has developed unintentional weight loss. And it's not clear that this is actually due to a decreased caloric intake, although it's a little bit hard to tell because he's changed his pattern of eating because of his early satiety. His main complaint is he's extremely short of breath on exertion now. So this is a guy who used to play up to two hours of squash a day who is basically short of breath just walking around his house. He has no night sweats, fevers, or cough. His review of system reveals that he is quote-unquote weak when you do a, a, a review of his uh, neurologic and MSK history. And he also says he's had long-standing lower back pain since his early 20s. He has no GI or GU symptoms, no rashes, and no chest pain. And he actually has some interesting past medical history that I'm going to tell you about now. So the first is he was diagnosed with a stroke, which was presumed to be secondary to cerebral vasculitis in 2001. We don't have a lot of documentation from that at the time. It sounds like it was a radiographic diagnosis, and he was treated with six months of steroids and recovered very well. 
Only steroids. Only steroids. Six months of prednisone. Never had a recurrence, never saw a rheumatologist again. Now you've got Danny's interest. Now, yeah, now. He's, he's now we're getting going. Perfect. <laughs> so we can think about what we think the strength of that diagnosis is, but I think it's an important part of his history as a potential differential diagnosis for what might be going on. He also has a parotid gland tumor. It's a pleiotropic adenoma, which is usually a benign tumor, but it does have malignant potential. So he's followed quite closely at BCCA with this tumor. And one of the challenges with the tumor is it's very hard to get rid of it entirely with surgery. So he's actually had two attempted resections and on both occasions it actually recurred. And so um, he just goes for serial follow-up with imaging and um, they're not planning on doing any chemo for it. He prefers not to. And so this is the strategy that they've adopted. He's also had a history of squamous cell carcinoma on his back. He probably has had quite significant sun exposure um, and that was resected. And he has a diagnosis of probable early prostate cancer, and he's adopting a watchful waiting strategy with his urologist. He doesn't take any medications. He's a lifelong non-smoker. He doesn't take any medications? No. He had a coronary bypass. Yeah. It's him. Yeah. He he took aspirin for a while. Didn't really feel like it was necessary anymore. He actually takes nothing now. Somebody stopped his statin because they were worried about his weakness being attributable to statins. So he stopped that. And then um, he didn't really feel the need to also take aspirin. Mm. And that was stopped in about 2014. And it was weakness without myalgias. Yes, okay. just weakness. He is um, he's never a never IV drug user, and he has no occupational exposures, no significant travel uh, really in the last 20 years outside the developed world. He's married, uh, lives with his wife at home. He has three healthy adult children, and there's really no family history of any malignancies or autoimmunities. His physical exam is largely unremarkable, but I'll go through it briefly. Normal blood pressure, normal heart rate, normal respiratory rate. He has a midline sternotomy scar, but no signs of heart failure. He's got a normal respiratory exam entirely. He has no head and neck lymphadenopathy that's palpable, and you can't feel any mass in his neck or jaw related to his adenoma. His abdomen is benign, but he has a very thin build. And when you look at him, he does look like he has lost a lot of, um, he looks like he has protein malnourishment. And he also, on a CNS exam, uh, has maybe some mild decreased power that's uh, symmetric throughout all of the extremities, but otherwise all of his neurological testing is normal. He has the basic investigations done, all of which are unremarkable. So normal electrolytes, normal CBC, trace hemoglobinuria, and uh, normal liver function testing and enzymes, normal cardiac biomarkers, and a PSA that is 10.7. He has a chest x-ray. The chest x-ray is abnormal. He, this is after he's had a wedge resection. He does have some possible uh, tracking of possible bronchiectasis in the right, um, along the right hilum, and he's got some volume loss in his apices bilaterally, most notably on the left side. It's also common that he has some flat diaphragms. Just a quick question. The PSA, is that trended yes. over time? Is that his baseline? Or Good it's... question. He gets a PSA every year, and that's <laughs> basically how his PSA has been for a while. Hmm. So he gets a few more investigations. He gets an exercise stress test, which is negative for ischemia, and there's no obvious arrhythmias. His echo is entirely unremarkable. Do you know how he performed on the stress test? Not well. Poor exercise capacity. Mm. He gets a good heart rate response, but he really only lasts on a treadmill for like three or four minutes. Mm. Um, he then has a six-minute walk test, which documents an objective desaturation from 97% to 90%, and he's short of breath at that time. Spirometry reveals that he has a mild restrictive lung pattern, and a VQ scan shows that he's got no mismatch, so no suggestion that there's a pulmonary embolus or some other um, uh, filling problem. So at this point, I'd like to open it up to the group to discuss a little bit. 
How do you decide which path to take in a case like this where there's sort of multiple complaints going on? So I think like when I take histories, I tend to, to first, first I want to know everything about you and then we're going to talk about why you came in. So I want to know everything about your past medical history first because I think that adjusts all the pre-tests and post-test probabilities of all the questions that you then ask from there on. So I have lots of questions about this like past medical history, like the cerebral vasculitis and that literally everything about that is unusual. So I think I would hear, I want to get some more information about that because I know I am biased by <laughs> being a room fellow, but I think it's important to know, are we positive that he had three vessel coronary artery disease or or did he have coronary vasculitis at that time? I think that's relevant and could go missed and has gone missed in past cases that, that I've seen. And what was his serology? How did he respond to treatment? What's the basis of the diagnosis of cerebral vasculitis versus was he was it true cerebral vasculitis or was this stroke from a different etiology altogether? And I think that that is relevant. Um, but that was like about 15 years ago. So maybe not coming into play. And then when we start to deal with his symptoms today, early satiety, weight loss, increasing shortness of breath with exercise intolerance and true DSAT. Um, I think that my window into this case may be um, the true desaturation. Mm -hmm. So like, is this a lung problem? It's not a a hemoglobin problem as far as we know. Mm -hmm. Is it an acid-base problem? Not as far as we know. Um, Is it a pulmonary vascular problem? Is it a cardiac problem? Um, Those kind of might be the, the big broad umbrella areas that I might start to investigate more deeply. Dr. Foy, what do you think? Yeah, you know, like I I think, I feel like I, so the last week's case was kind of a simple-ish problem, you mm-hmm. know, but right now I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hydrant for the last 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data that's been kind of flying out of a computer and so kind of like Danny, like I think what I'm trying to do is to summarize the case for myself in some cogent, succinct way, and then try to decide which of all the facts that we've heard are relevant, which are just red herrings. Mm -hmm. So to me, he's a guy who, yeah, he's got some real question marks about his past medical history. And in that respect, I totally agree with Danny. He suddenly gets sick from like a very good premorbid baseline, suddenly gets sick. So like, I don't have a great, just the whole thing about the three-vessel disease diagnosis, it's not typical. Like, normally, like, you've met a lot of people with three-vessel disease. They don't suddenly get exertional chest pain and shortness of breath, and then the next week go for an angiogram, be diagnosed with three-vessel disease, and then go on to have a bypass. Like, that, mm-hmm. something fishy there that I just don't really, that, that, that illness script doesn't fit my illness script for coronary disease. Anyway, so then he goes and, and like, has a complication that I don't think is irrelevant, mm-hmm. I think. Gets probably slow recovery from that, but then has a setback a year after his surgery. And that setback presents as exertional shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, and objective hypoxemia. Um, now with new things, so, so that's a thing that I agree with Danny, sounds like it's lung or heart, or, mm-hmm. or the interface between lung and heart. But then early satiety, I don't 
that to me isn't lung or heart always, or usually isn't lung or heart. So mm-hmm. now I kind of have to integrate that. I'm not sure what to do with that. Weight loss, not like so. So so there's some pieces here that just start fitting together for me. I'm a little bit. I'm not going to say that I'm lost. It's just I I, I think you're. This is a good question here. What path are we going to take? I, I don't know that we're going to be able to pick one path right now. I think we might have to have like two parallel diagnostic trains here. Can I uh, add just one more thing to this? Um, it wasn't covered in the history, but if you ask him, as you were both going to go back and reevaluate re- him, he would say that his problems began uh, just after the cardiac surgery. He would say about he would st- he started his problems about a month. Start to notice a change in himself about a month after the cardiac surgery. Did he feel immediately better after the cardiac surgery? No, I just it's he got better, but he never got to his baseline. But but just in in description, his description of him and his illness, whatever the illness is, that's when he would say that's when he dates his problems beginning. So he really so so one thing I think in this case it's really important is to figure out is this cardiac surgery potentially related to this whole presentation or is it a red herring? And the patient himself really believes that there is something about this presentation, maybe with coronary disease, maybe with his cabbage, something around there went wrong for him and he never recovered. That's how he that's how he term that's how he describes it. That's if you say when were you last well, he doesn't go back to prior to the the, the surgery, he goes after the surgery. And he sees the vasculitis as a incidental diagnosis in his past that was relatively transient. It sounds like he had symptoms of maybe a TIA, mild stroke, recovered extremely well from it, spent a day or two in hospital, saw a neurologist, the neurologist did a CT scan, said you probably have vasculitis, put him on prednisone, and he got better. He does not view it as a major significant event in his history. We'll press forward just in the interest of time. I'll just make one quick comment, which is to say, like, I I probably used to not put a ton of stock into what the patient thought their problem was. Yeah. But now I put a ton of stock into what the patient (laughs) thinks their problem is. Like, I guess I've heard enough patients say, like, I kept telling the doctor that this is what I had. Mm -hmm. And then, like, five years later, it turns out I was right. I've heard that story so many times that now I put a ton of stock. So... So if the patient is convinced of that, then I'm going to have, like, in addition to the things that I was considering now with that extra piece of information, the surgery, I'm going to want to know a lot more about exactly what happened, what happened in the ICU, but also thinking through, like, what are the common-ish complications of coronary bypass surgery, any intrathoracic surgery, and complications of a wedge resection. So things like, you know, things like a shunt somewhere, I'm all of a sudden a little bit more keen on mm-hmm. uh, than I was five minutes ago. Okay. So Dr. Voyer has suggested that we take parallel paths to sort out this case because there's more than one thing to maybe hang our hat on. So this gentleman actually over the next two years has multiple referrals to specialists and they all start referring to each other for problems that they perceive to be in the other person's domain. And so we're briefly going to go through some of those experiences that the patient has. So the first lens that they put on the case is a respirology lens. And so he is referred by his family doctor to a local respirologist. And what's described is this is a 72-year-old male with restrictive lung disease, desaturations, weight loss, and shortness of breath. And that's why the respirologist sees him. And so he undergoes an urgent CT chest, which reveals he has some traction bronchiectasis and mild peripheral fibrosis. 
He then gets AFBs done, even though he doesn't really produce very much sputum, and they're negative on three occasions. He then has repeat PFTs, like the full gamut of PFTs, and it shows that he does have moderate restrictive lung disease, and his DLCO is low at 60%. So he's got parenchymal lung disease. And the working diagnosis made by the respirologist is actually that this is, quote, respiratory muscle weakness. And the reason he comes up with this diagnosis is he feels that both the CT scan findings and the PFT findings are too inconsequential to actually account for his severity of symptoms and the severity of his desaturation. But does the, the, how, how do you, the diffusion capacity, how do you integrate that with respiratory muscle weakness? I understand your concern. This is what was presented to the patient at the time that he saw the respirologist. Okay. So I realize there's some dissatisfaction with this conclusion, but on the basis of this suggestion, the respirologist feels that the ultimate answer to this patient's symptoms is outside of his domain. And so he puts a new lens on the case. He puts the neurology lens on the case. Sorry, did he test the patient for, like, their respiratory muscle strength? No. Didn't do, like, like minimal respiratory, respiratory pressures, anything like that? I don't think so. Okay. He no, actually, no, he didn't. He, he didn't. didn't. And he actually sent him to the neurologist, which we're going to hear about, for the because of the muscle weakness. So the lens that he puts on the case is he asks the neurologist to see the patient, who is a 72-year-old male with restrictive lung disease, quote-unquote muscle weakness, cachexia, vasculitis, and shortness of breath. And so based on this story, the neurologist goes and orders a CK for the first time, which is unremarkable. And the patient undergoes an EMG, which is also unremarkable. Did he examine the patient? <laughs> yes. Did he find the patient to be weak? No. Okay. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. Certainly a thin, uh, you know, lean gentleman, but not objectively weak. And I think the question is, how do we get here? So we started off with a guy who's short of breath who has fibrotic lung disease, and somehow he ends up in a neurologist's office. And if you put this lens on the case... I think you can make it seem and sound like it might be respiratory muscle weakness, but I think we're all in agreement this is sort of a weird path to take. I think like, yeah, when you have a, a, a subspecialist who says this person does have chest wall muscle weakness, then then they do. Like <laughs> like like if if you refer to a specialist who has no capacity to test that or prove it, right. then they're gonna presume that the specialist did that thing mm-hmm. on which they made that statement. So yeah, I guess like if you're the neurologist, you're saying, all right, like then he does. So we got to figure out why. So despite a normal physical exam, EMGs. Right, exactly. It makes, it makes there's symmetry there. It just. This is probably an example of, of some faulty logic. Um, and so we've kind of gone down a few paths. So we've seen a respirologist and the respirologist said, well, he's got some abnormalities, but it doesn't explain his symptoms very well. He's seen a neurologist who essentially signs off and says there's no objective signs of respiratory muscle weakness. And a cardiologist does some stress testing and echo and says this is not from your heart. So the next lens that someone puts on the case is the rheumatology lens. So he gets referred by his respirologist to a rheumatologist with the description that this is a 72-year-old male with restrictive lung disease, chronic low back pain, vasculitis, and hemoglobinuria. And so I think around the table we can always... Think about the illness script that that potentially <clears throat> falls into. You can imagine what the rheumatologist suggests doing. So the patient gets an ANCA and a rheumatoid factor measured, and they're both negative, and his ANA is fairly weakly positive. 
you get some spine imaging that shows no evidence of ankylosing spondylitis, which was raised as a concern because of possible interstitial lung disease, as well as his chronic low back pain. And aortitis could go with it, but I don't think coronary vasculitis. I, I don't know that there's a specific association there. So yeah. trying to wrap together the some of the past history with this history, I don't I don't love ink spawn for it. Do you know what kind of spine imaging it was? Like, was it x-ray or MR? Um, I think it was CT, actually. He's got some degenerative OA at 71, but nothing else to be worried about. And his the other thing they did was they reviewed his uh, echo to make sure he didn't have aortic root dilation, mm. which is associated with eczema. And any inflammatory markers? I know we don't like love those diagnostically, but does he have uh, evidence of like prominent inflammation, CRP, ESR? His CRP is in that range that makes it, you know, it's in it, his CRP has done money many times and it's sort of in the negative window but the moderate probability window so oh, okay. yeah like two three four is kind of i think where some of them have been and some of them have been negative as well so we've now down gone down multiple paths and now the rheumatologist says it's not rheumatologic so then the respirologist who has become the quarterback refers him back to oncology and urology and says this is a 72 year old male who has pleiotropic adenoma probable prostate cancer weight loss and when he re-reviews the the chest imaging he thinks there's maybe some lymphadenopathy so you can imagine the lens that he wants to put on this case now is potentially one of cancer. So his PSA, as Dan has asked early on, is actually negative or stable for him. And he has a repeat neck ultrasound looking at his pleiotropic adenoma. It actually appears to be enlarging. So they go ahead and re-biopsy the adenoma, and it just shows reactive cells, which they feel is, oncology feels, makes it less likely it's been some malignant transformation, but that certainly was the concern. And so they plan to do an FDG PET scan to determine if he has uptake in his jaw and if he's uptake in his mediastinum, which would suggest that he had malignant transformation and has now metastasized. So he's now seen these specialists. And so finally, the one thing that's left is his GI tract. And they say, well, this is a guy who's got a wasting disease, an early satiety. And that's the lens that they put on the case. And so the, the gastroenterologist orders a whole bunch of stool studies, which are all negative. He does an upper endoscopy, which is totally normal, and he takes biopsies looking for celiac disease. And they're all negative. So now that he's seen a gastroenterologist, he has gone down all of these paths, and it has taken him over three years to get here. Yes. You imagine it takes sometimes three, four months to see a specialist. So he's been seeing these ones not simultaneously, but in sequence. Mm. He has now lost 25 kilograms, which is nearly half of his baseline weight. And he's actually moved from living in a house to living in an apartment because he cannot take care of his house anymore. He says, I'm debilitated. I can't do anything anymore. So I want to bring up a very brief point, which is what is the role of internal medicine in a case like this? So my interpretation is internal medicine either sees the case at the very beginning where it's undifferentiated, nobody knows what's going on, or they see it at the very end when everybody else has seen it and thinks it's not related to their specialty. Is that your guys' experience as well? I think that's a, a great place for a, a general internist who has knowledge in all of these areas and can tie together these various opinions and question the respirologist, like because the rheumatologist is not going to be like, oh, you didn't do MIPS and MEPS, you didn't do mean expiratory pressures, like you've not proven muscle weakness. Um, but the general internist would, would read that study on his or her own and say, you've not done that. We need that. So repeat full pulmonary function testing to satisfy 
what I think proves muscle weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I totally agree. Like a general internist probably needs to be involved in this case where everyone else has not been able to interpret everything towards a diagnosis. It's all been pulled apart into its various subspecialties. One thing we've talked about a little bit outside of this um, podcast is is like who's going to be the audience to consume what we're talking about here. And, and so if, if the audience is going to be if, if any of the audience is going to be people who are out in the community practicing internal medicine, they're listening to this case and just rolling their eyes and clawing at their computer screens because because in the community, the general internist is the point of entry into subspecialty care. And so a patient like this never would have been quarterbacked by a subspecialist or whatever. Right. Um, and, and here the quarterback would have been a general internist to say like, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to sequentially test or, or parallel test a number of hypotheses. And with those things being tested, I will then kind of reformulate the plan and the problem uh, and then move forward in that way. But this this business of like passing this poor hot potato from one specialist to another, it, it is so much more common in the city and so much less common in the community um, and, I, and for this, I apologize that, that our community internist <laughs> colleagues have to listen to this just train wreck. He, he, in the system that we have, he has not been served very well. Um, yeah. And, just, and, and again, I, and, I'm, and I'm biased. Like, I'm a general internist, and I'm very proud of the work that I do. And I think subspecialists might hear this case and say, well, this all makes sense. Like, we're doing, you know, like, we know a lot about our specific things and we and we did do internal medicine training you know like a lot of our subspecialty colleagues would say like what are you going to contribute to this case but um i think that's a mindset that's particular to the to the city i think this a case like this a man like this who had presented to um our colleagues in salmon arm or pentecton or nanaimo would have been managed uh, differently i i don't disagree i think that they're probably um yeah, I think that you use the resources that are available to you, and I think the resources in the city in this situation were different. You may have multiple people that whose opinions you seek in a in another center, but again, I think when when any of us is stuck, we probably turn to a colleague and say, "What do you think?" And I think in some this it just happens these colleagues fall into different categories. But but I don't think that there's a. I think this is something that we've done poorly, or maybe because a long time, for a long time, there just weren't enough internists right. in the city. But um, I don't think people have the reflex when things get very complicated to say, you know what, maybe we should get an internist in to see this patient until it's like until Wait. it's three years later and the patient's lost sixty pounds and uh, mm-hmm. is Way getting placed line. in long term care. Okay. So I think this is a case that um, at this point we'll talk about uh, how Dr. Cass and I became involved, but I think this is a case where you really have to begin again. Go back to the very beginning of the story, re-review all of his records, find the things that the subspecialist maybe have missed because it doesn't quite fall within their domain. And I sort of uh, equate this to finding a, a, a hook to hang your hat on, something in that case that's missing that might uh, reveal what the diagnosis is. So at this point, we have a laundry list of investigations, testing, specialist reports. So the cardiologist has done an echo and says it's non-cardiac based on both his echo findings and his exercise stress test. The respirologist agrees he probably has fibrotic lung disease with bronchiectasis, but he feels that his desaturations would be out of keeping with 
the degree of fibrotic lung disease he has, and so therefore maybe he has muscle weakness. The neurologist doesn't believe that this is the correct diagnosis. The rheumatologist doesn't believe that he's got a rheumatologic diagnosis and isn't even sure if he's truly had cerebral vasculitis in the past. The oncologist and urologist don't feel there's any evidence of malignant spread of either his, his um, uh, prostate cancer or his pleiotropic adenoma, but he is awaiting a PET scan. And the gastroenterologist did his scope and feels that there's no gastrointestinal cause of this. So this is, this is what you have available to you when you see this patient. So it's July 2016, and this is my first day in Dr. Kasson's clinic. And the referral is the last referral of the day after seeing multiple patients with similar complex problems. And so the referral from the respirologist is as follows. I would appreciate your opinion for unexplained shortness of breath and weight loss. It all may relate to depression. So I think this is often the conclusion that is reached when there really is no other potential differential diagnosis left, um, but certainly a diagnosis of exclusion. On this point, I agree that it's related to confusion, that, <laughs> to, to depression, but uh, the relationship is not causal. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent he's short, point. He's short of breath and thin, but that's making him depressed. So I asked him very specifically about diagnosis of depression. He says, yes, I have been depressed because I'm dying. Yeah, totally. That he, he believes that it's a secondary effect. Yeah. It's not yeah. unlike Mr. G who said, I'm dying. Yeah, absolutely. Like. Yeah. Like you both yeah. always yeah. say, like you listen, like what is the patient telling you? Yeah. Like the answer is there. The patient always tells you what they have. Like you have to listen yeah. so carefully. I'm dying. Sick. This guy is pretty sick. So the day I saw him, actually, the PET scan result became available on CareConnect. And it gave us a little bit more information. So he has prominent lymphadenopathy throughout the mediastinum that it's relatively low uptake. He also has bibasal granulomas and a splenic granuloma that was actually seen on a previous CT, but not really worked up any further. And the result of the PET is the radiologist says this is not suggestive of metastatic cancer. So a light bulb goes off. And I walk into the room with a different frame of mind than I would have without this result, probably. Which is, you're saying, like, this is a patient with granulomatous disease. Yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that is a new... It's a new light bulb. Mm -hmm. And there were some, we'll get to it, but there was some evidence that this potentially could be a play earlier in the case. But even by a respirologist, it wasn't taken as seriously, maybe as it should have been, or um, there were other potential diagnoses that were at play that seemed much more likely. So rightfully so, someone has taken a TB history from this patient. Um, but the TB history that he had prior to this was mostly asking him around his travel patterns. So he's asked very directly by us. You told your previous doctors that you've never traveled, but have you ever been exposed to TB? And he says, oh yeah, my dad had active TB throughout my entire childhood in the 1940s. I remember him coughing all over the place. Remember how sick he was. And by the way, somebody ordered a TB skin test two years ago and it was very positive. <laughs> and that TB skin test is available. <laughs> Who ordered it? Uh, the respirologist. Yeah, was a... so so <laughs> this is a I mean this is a common I have to talk I, I feel like every month I talk to the residents about this about TB skin testing having a positive TB skin test does not mean that you have active tuberculosis but you every time you're ordering that test you should be asking yourself why am I ordering this test mm -hmm. and so it's a the TB skin test is a test for latent tuberculosis uh, it may also be positive if you if you have active TB but mm -hmm. um, here 
you'd need to know why it was being ordered. And if it was being ordered in a man who's had 30 pounds of weight loss two years ago, then, well, come on. <laughs> and he's got granulomas through his lungs and his spleen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that if there's some agreement in the room, this gentleman certainly has latent tuberculosis at the very least. Uh, at the very least. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the, well... <laughs> At, at, the, at the super but, yes, but but I think yeah. yeah. I mean now you're really beholden to investigate further. Yeah, like he has TB until you could, un- unless you come up with a, a brilliant other granulomatous disease that fits this pattern. It, like to me, he just, he just has you, TB. You you remember those words? Okay. Although although you know, <laughs> so maybe love the foreshadow. Maybe maybe like so maybe this is all about to be a diagnosis of of like extra pulmonary and pulmonary TB. But I still, like, why exactly does he have early satiety? Is it just, is it early satiety or does he just have, like, anorexia and a wasting disease? Those are two different things. So if he's got anorexia, I could blame that on on widely spread TB. But does he have early satiety? If he does, that still needs to be explained. Like, why is he so hypoxemic? Is that from, like, I haven't seen anything to explain that why is his DLCO low why does he have fibrotic lung disease so even if we are about to make a diagnosis here of TB which like the temperature in the room is telling me maybe we are I still need to understand what's causing those because if he has TB and and early interstitial lung disease and we don't diagnose that part correctly then that's still a miss mm-hmm. so I'll remind you that both that his apices look particularly abnormal on both the CT and the X-ray. Yeah. And he's the predominance of fibrosis there. Obviously, one of them is abnormal because he's had a wedge resection. Yeah. Um, when you do take a better dietary history from him, it sounds like he's maintaining adequate caloric intake. He does have early satiety, but I think it's important that he, his caloric intake still is quite good. He just eats frequent small meals. He certainly has not stopped eating enough to actually lose 30 kilos, I think. Okay. So at this point, I think it's good to sort of stop and rethink about what the information you have at this point, because you've reached a potential um, next step, um, and to consider all of these things, like does it explain the fibrotic lung disease? Does it explain the early satiety? He certainly needs further workup. Yeah, I think there. Are, I agree. There are definitely there is still a differential here. It's not certainly TB, but that needs to be excluded as the cause for all these things. Mm-hmm. Did he ever have any SR? No, he's only had CRPs. So. Briefly, we'll talk about an illness script for TB and see what factors actually contribute that might uh, match the illness script for TB that we know. So this is a guy who has diffuse mediastinal lymphadenopathy. And the radiologist actually writes in his report, I favor a granulomatous, sorry, granulomatous disease like sarcoid or tuberculosis over any other potential diagnosis. He also has multiple pulmonary granulomas in his bases and a splenic granuloma. He has unexplained bronchiectasis. If you remember from the CT, he does have quite notable bronchiectasis. He has a strong exposure history for TB in his childhood. He has a positive TB skin test. For what it's worth, Dr. Boyer has has, uh, quite appropriately drawn that test, the the use of that test into question for this clinical scenario. And also he's had unexplained years of profound weight loss. So what do you think? Is this a Hickam's dictum? Meaning that he has coronary artery bypass surgery, has a complication, maybe has cerebrovasculitis, but then on top of it happens to have developed uh, um, active tuberculosis in the interim. I think I do not have the clinical skill so far 
to put these together or separate them. Mm-hmm. I think, like, for, for me, this is a place where, like, my physical exam and history does not differentiate, and test and testing is, is like, the extra 5% to get us to the diagnosis type of thing, whereas other times it's go back to the history physical. I think this is, like, you need tissue. You need tissue diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, and I, I don't think I can say. Stefan, what do you think? Are you asking me, like, do I think that three-vessel disease is related to tuberculosis? So if we're going to give him a diagnosis of tuberculosis, we accept the fact that there are things in his past medical history that are probably non-contributory. Hmm. Yeah. We cannot tie everything together. Is that, do you feel comfortable with that? Well, I, I, do, I do think TB, um, I know that TB is more likely to reactivate as you age, but also as you have a physiologic stress or immunosuppression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, he, if he got six months of steroids for a cerebral vasculitis, it's interesting that it didn't reactivate then, mm-hmm. but I guess he was younger and his immune system was more robust or whatever. But now maybe just the illness, like the, the ICU admission and whatever, maybe that was enough to reactivate or just his age or whatever. I don't I'm not, know. I'm not fussed about the fact that he's got multiple active problems. I don't. Um, I don't know his exact medication history in the in the ICU either. When he recovered, it's very possible he got steroids for some. You know, maybe a bit of ARDS. Maybe he got some moxifloxacin for a, a pneumonia. Like it's very possible throughout this clinical course that he has been had other medications that have potentially contributed to his presentation of TB or to the fact that he is a mask uh, uh, episode of TB. So, like uh, Daniel has suggested, he goes on and has an urgent endobronchial ultrasound. And, when, and so there's another cook in the kitchen now because only a specific respirologist in Vancouver can do it. And when she does the bronchoscopy, she actually comments on the airways and says that the airways look dusky and dark throughout, which is very characteristic of tuberculosis, and then does the EBUS. Nothing's ever supposed to look dusky, right? <laughs> it's always, always bad. So we'll, dusk. we'll press forward. <laughs> yeah, only dusk. So eight weeks passes by. And he comes back to Dr. Casson's clinic, and I say, why are you here? You know, you're seen by another respirologist now. And he says, I'm back because I don't have TB. And sure enough, I go and check the computer, and his AFBs, his cultures, are both negative eight weeks post-EBUS. And his respirologist called him and said, it's an interesting potential diagnosis, but you don't have TB, so we need some help. What do you guys think? Is this fair? How long are they going to keep the samples? Hopefully for quite a while, and I think that's a good point. Sometimes TB cultures become positive 12, 16 weeks later. They'll keep them. We're now at sort of modern day time right now. So this case... We're two weeks ago. We're two weeks ago. So we're still waiting to see if things become positive. This case is wrinkling my brain. Um, I <laughs> think... He continues to say, sorry to interrupt, but he continues to say at this time, I don't have TB. I can't go on any longer. I don't know that he doesn't have TB. In fact, um, I think there are enough indicators that I think, and in a lot of places in the world, you would empirically treat this man for TB. Totally. And and I think you could make an argument to do that with him. Obviously, with very close monitoring, this is a guy who's a sitting duck for a complication of TB therapy. Um, But yeah, I would would consider it. Sure. Let's press forward. I think that's an excellent point. So we're back to square one, but not really. So I think the first thing to, do, to know is what are your test characteristics for an EBUS? So how good is it actually at TB? And so um, I enjoy these uh, funny uh, test answers, but you have to ask the right question in order to get a reasonable answer. 
And so I looked up this information. There's actually a good meta-analysis uh, from 2014 on the efficacy and safety of EBUS for a diagnosis of intrathoracic tuberculosis. And what this is is an eight-study meta-analysis comprised of 809 patients. And they did a pooled sensitivity and specificity for detecting TB and found the pooled sensitivity was 80%, giving an excellent positive likelihood ratio and a pretty good negative likelihood ratio. What's the gold standard? Uh, the gold standard is a culture-positive AFP, or culture-positive TB. But culture from what, if not from the EBUS? I know. That's probably why it's 100%. Right. Yeah. So, that, so I don't know what to... Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean... Yes. Yeah. But this is true of a lot of these studies that make them hard to interpret. Yeah. So there's a follow-up study to this one in 2014, I thought I'd mention, which is a, another EBUS study in tuberculosis uh, lymphadenitis, which is what this gentleman may have. And so this is a multi-center retrospective study where they looked at all patients who underwent an EBUS-guided lymph node biopsy with tissue referred for MTB culture, and then cross-checked them against these patients against the TB registries in Australia thereafter. And again, they found a similar negative likelihood ratio and a similar sensitivity when they compared to microbiology. And so if you actually plot this out on Fagan's nomogram, if you start off with a very high pretest probability of TB, even a negative EBUS still puts you in the 30 to 40% post-test probability, which is probably above some people's treatment threshold. So Dr. Voye has already told us what he thinks is reasonable to do next, and that's exactly what we thought. So we went back and talked to the patient, and we asked him, what do you think about empiric TB therapy? And he says, I can't live like this anymore. If there's any chance that it'll work, let me try TB treatment. I'm willing to take the risk. And so there's some literature out there on, on actually... Um, uh, empirically treating presumed TB without a confirmed diagnosis, and it's mostly based out of Asia, this literature. But this is just one study of 101 patients treated for presumptive TB based on imaging in an academic center. And what they found out was that pulmonary TB was actually eventually confirmed in 32 of these patients. 96% responded to therapy. But TB was actually never microbiologically confirmed in 69 of the patients, so a large number of them, almost two-thirds of them. And almost 75% of those patients also show clinical improvement, suggesting that probably in a subset of patients, it is reasonable to try this. So if you go back and read the, the guidelines, the CDC guidelines, they actually make a comment about empiric TB treatment. And what they say is that if no other diagnosis is established in the PPD-positive patient, empirical combination chemotherapy should be initiated. If there is a clinical or radiographic response within two months of therapy and no other diagnosis has been established, they recommend a diagnosis of culture-negative TB, and they should continue treatment for an additional two months. So this is actually part of the guidelines and still done in the modern world. Is the one thing, that the one test that he hasn't had that I would least consider would be a mediastinoscopy, like have the thoracic surgeon go down, have a look. Does the sampling on EBUS isn't, I don't know if you've seen an EBUS, it's still kind of a bit of guesswork. Like, <laughs> it is. Uh, It'd be very <clears throat> tough with someone who's, chest had been opened previously twice yeah. to actually do, I don't think we'd get much enthusiasm about someone trying to navigate. I would at least just... discuss with a thoracic surgeon. Yeah. They, they may very well not be into it. Um, and I think that would be a totally reasonable objection if the anatomy in there is weird or if there's going to be a lot of scarring. But, you know, because empiric treatment in Asia in a resource poor setting may be more defensible here. I don't know. Like, I think we have enough, and I'm totally comfortable with empiric treatment, but I would at least run the case by a third <clears throat> So could this still be an Occam's razor? Could everything be explained by his heart surgery? And so 
I want to talk to you about some breaking news that Dr. Cass and I found. Well, hold on. I'd like to correct that. I'd like to talk to you about the breaking news that Dr. Rostin found that informed me because I was really at the stage that we're just talking about right now when when I heard this news. So, Remember, he dates his problem to a month after his surgery. That's what he says. So it's not about Donald Trump, despite the fact that that's most of the breaking news these days. It's actually about heart surgery patients who may be at risk of a deadly infection. Yeah. So if Sanjay Gupta is reporting on this, you know it must be real medical news. But there is actually now increasing reports of patients who um, were operated on in, the, in an open heart surgery setting in between 2012 and 2015 that may have been exposed to non-tuberculous mycobacterium in the operating room through a, um, a contaminated heater cooling system. Dr. Voye is nodding his head. You've heard about this. Yeah. I have a patient in, in another center that I think possibly had this problem. Right. So it has not been described in Vancouver. We went and spoke to the cardiac surgeon to infectious diseases, and they use the same heater cooling system in Vancouver as the one made in Switzerland. That Germany. Wow. Germany. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so when you think about the illness script of non-tuberculous mycobacterium, and you think about this gentleman, that also, I think, fits. So it's mycobacterium chimera, which mm -hmm. is the one they've described. Mm -hmm. That's the contaminant. Sorry, and just to put it in perspective, it's it's the, the cases that they've described, it, this gets into the air of the operating room. Mm -hmm. And most of the cases have been with infected valves, prosthetic valves. Yeah. But there have been at least, who knows, but there are suggestions that other people may be involved. I don't know anything about that particular mycobacterial strain, but would it still respond to typical TB management strategies? It's a good question. So my point is it's sometimes good not to live under a rock. It's good to look <laughs> at the news every so often, and sometimes you get important information from it. That's directed at me, specifically. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> so, uh, so the plan at this point, we are in now at present time. He has been referred to an infectious disease TB expert to discuss whether or not he needs empiric, TB for t empiric treatment for TB or for mycobacterium chimera, or for both. The patient should probably receive a long course of something. And the, and the, infectious, <laughs> disease, the infectious disease physician agrees. They're just trying to decide right now. Um, and I say, by the way, how did we even get here? We're kind of running out of time. But I think it's interesting to see the problem that we actually presented with initially. So some summary points. So try to figure out when the patient feels he or she got sick. Not when you think their medical problem started, but when did the patient think they started? And that's what clued me into this potential relationship with um, this potential exposure in the operating room. Try not to bias a referral when you give it to someone. So we often sell referrals, quote unquote, sell them to subspecialists. You know, this is why it's a GI case or this is why it's a rest case. But I think in this case, sort of selling the referral actually put people down the wrong path sometimes. The other thing is understand the importance of pretest probabilities. So our pretest probability at the end of this case was quite high for TB. It didn't matter that much what the e-bus showed. Obviously, it would be very helpful if it was positive. But I think we did the right thing in not ruling out TB entirely after we got the negative uh, cultures. And sometimes you're above your treatment threshold, regardless of what, whether the next diagnostic test needs to be ordered or not. And lastly, it's important to stay up to date and not just about the election. <laughs> Um, so with that, I want to thank all of you for, uh, for joining us today, and um, uh, we look forward to uh, 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 chatting for our next podcast.